0: All right, so some review stuff. What kind of genre is Revelation? Prophecy, okay, anything else? Yep, ap- apocryphal, absolutely. It uses a lot of symbolic imagery. What about the letters to the churches? Is that an epistle? Yeah, so we've got a mixture of three kind of uh, genres there. Who wrote the book of Revelation? Yeah, most likely Apostle John, but of course that is uh, disputed, moderately disputed. I think it was the Apostle John. Where was he when he wrote it? Patmos. Exile Patmos. A Greek, uh, well, Roman uh, penal colony, uh, uh, island of Patmos off the coast of Greece. When did he write it? That's a trick question. That's right. Either the 90s or the 60s. Yep. Should we take everything literally in the... (laughs) 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 Why should we not take everything literally? What did we just say? One of the genres was, right? Apocalyptic. So it has lots of symbolic imagery in it. Okay, so we've got to keep that in mind. Heavy symbolic imagery... With lots of Old Testament references, uh, my new friend uh, Dr. Phillips wrote a wonderful commentary on this, which I relied very heavily on. And his quote is beautiful. It says, "Revelation is not a puzzle book; it's a picture book." So, love that one. Sometimes we look at Revelation, we're like, "Oh, we're going to fit in the pieces and it'll be like this, and then unlock all of this." It's not a puzzle book; it's a picture book. So, last week we looked at chapters one through five. We're going to see how far we get this week, hopefully by God's grace. But we want to take our time. I, I, I'm already going to give up my wild fantasy of being done next week. We'll see. <laughs> Justin's like, I told you. <laughs> I'm like, sure, 21 chapters, seven a week, no problem. But again, a lot of this is how you interpret this book. And just to review, there were four main approaches to interpreting we have preterism which says the events already occurred. We have futurism, which says that the events will occur. We have historicism, which says it's just simply a chronological outline of everything that has happened and will happen to the church. And idealism, which says it's not really stuff at all. It's just about ideals and forces, not actual events. And so the mixture is important because I think there are definitely elements of each one of those as you walk through interpreting Revelation. All right? Uh, Let's talk about this week and looking at 6 through 11. I'm going to give a little intro to them and then let your hearts not be troubled. We will watch a movie, okay? But this week in chapter 6, it starts with three cycles of sevens. Again, are they necessarily literal? No, not necessarily, right? Are they chronological? Not necessarily, right? We're going to see about that. We're going to see some things that make sense. Heavily, heavily symbolic. And overall, what the whole book is symbolizing, like, if you get lost in the weeds, just keep thinking about what's happening here. It is symbolizing what? What's the big idea of Revelation? It's not hard. This is bottom shelf stuff. What's, what's the big idea of Revelation? Yeah, Jesus comes back, right? Jesus comes back, there's a judgment, he's going to, this kingdom's, this, this world's coming to an end, the new world is coming into existence, right? So always keep in mind that's where we're going through all of these things, okay? And so, this week we're going to look at seven seals, we're going to look at seven trumpets and seven bowls. We're definitely not going to get to seven bowls, because that's in chapter 15, But there are three kind of sequences of sevens. And what we'll see in the video, which I completely agree with, and as we go through this, we will see that each seventh part of it contains the next seven, right? Because we'll see as we get to the seventh seal, it'll be like one through six, and then skip. And you're like, where's the seventh? And it's like, it's not coming yet. Because we'll have a little interlude, and then that will give birth to the next seven things. And so this guy uses... uh, the, the illustration of the nested dolls, and I think that's a really, really good way of looking at it, that the, the seventh part of uh, the seventh seal then gives birth to the next seven trumpets, and so on and so forth. What's the big deal about the number seven? What's that? Yeah completeness right another thing in revelation numerology lots of numbers doesn't necessarily mean actually seven or actually whatever else we're going to run into okay it represents that and so we're going to see that Uh, therefore there are three the way we should be looking at this when we look at the the seals and the trumpets and the bowls is that there are three different perspectives on the same thing. This three different perspectives on the return of Jesus Christ, right? That's the big idea. If you look at them chronologically, I, I think we're going to go into a ditch, and we don't want to do that. We're going to look at this as three different perspectives on the same thing, which is the return of Jesus Christ, okay? With that being said, hopefully that's enough of a little intro that we can Do our video. I did trim this video down as well. This is a six minute video of
1: hopefully six through 11. And we will. Which brings us to the next section of the book, the three cycles of seven. Seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. And each cycle depicts God's kingdom and justice coming here on earth as in heaven. Now, some people think that the three sets of seven divine judgments represent a literal, linear sequence of events that either happened in the past, or could be happening now, or are yet to happen in the future when Jesus returns. But notice how John has woven all the sevens together. So the final seven bowls come out of the seventh trumpet and the seventh seal and the seven trumpets emerge from the seventh seal. They're like nesting dolls. Each seventh contains the next seven. Also notice how each of the series of seven culminates in the final judgment and they have matching conclusions. So it's more likely that John is using each set of seven to depict the same period of time between Jesus's resurrection and future return from three different perspectives. So the slain lamb begins to open the scroll's first four seals, and John sees four horsemen. It's an image from the book of Zechariah chapter 1, and they symbolize times of war, conquest, famine, and death. In other words, a tragically average day in human history. Then the fifth seal depicts the murdered Christian martyrs before God's heavenly throne, and the cry of their innocent blood rises up before God like smoke from the altar of incense, and they're told to rest because more Christians are yet to die. We're not told why, but we are told that it won't last forever the sixth seal is God's ultimate response to their cry. He brings the great day of the Lord that was described in Isaiah and Joel, and the people of the earth cry out, Who is able to stand? And then all of a sudden, John pauses the action with an intermission to answer that question. John sees an angel with a signet ring coming to place a mark of protection on God's servants who are enduring all this hardship. And he hears the number of those who are sealed, 144,000. It's a military census, like the one in the book of Numbers, chapter 1. There are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, pay attention. The number of this army is what John heard, just like he heard about the conquering Lion of Judah. But in both cases, what he then turned and saw was the surprising fulfillment of those military images in Jesus, the slain lamb. So when he sees this messianic army of God's kingdom, it's made up of people from all nations fulfilling God's ancient promise to Abraham. It's this multi-ethnic army of the Lamb who can stand before God because they've been redeemed by the Lamb's blood. And now they are called to conquer, not by killing their enemies, but by suffering and bearing witness just like the Lamb. After this, the seventh and final seal is broken, but before the scroll is opened, the seven warning trumpets emerge and fire is taken from the incense altar. It symbolizes the cry of the martyrs and it's cast onto the earth, bringing the day of the Lord to its completion. Now, with the seven trumpets, John backs up and he retells the story again, this time with images from the Exodus story. So the first five trumpet blasts replay the plague sent upon Egypt, and then the sixth trumpet releases the four horsemen that came from the first four seals. But then John tells us that despite all these plagues, the nations did not repent, just like Pharaoh didn't in the Exodus story. So it seems that God's judgment alone will not bring people to humble repentance before him. Then John pauses the action again with another intermission. An angel brings the unsealed scroll that was opened by the lamb. And just like Ezekiel, John is told to eat the scroll and then proclaim its message to the nations. Finally, the lamb scroll is open and now we will discover how God's kingdom will come here on earth. The scroll's content is spelled out in two symbolic visions first, John sees God's temple and the martyrs by the altar and he's told to measure and set them apart. It's an image of protection taken from Zechariah chapter 2. But then the outer courts in the city are excluded and they get trampled down by the nations. Now some think that this refers literally to a destruction of Jerusalem that happened in the past or will happen in the future. But more likely, John's following the tradition of Jesus and the apostles who all used the new temple as a symbol for God's new covenant people. In that case, this is an image about how Jesus' followers may suffer persecution by the nations, but this external defeat cannot take away their victory through the Lamb. This idea gets expanded in the scroll's second vision. God appoints two witnesses as prophetic representatives to the nations. And once again, some people think this refers literally to two prophets who will appear one day in the future. But John calls them lampstands, which is one of his clear symbols for the churches. So this vision is more likely about the prophetic role of Jesus' followers, who are to take up the mantle of Moses and Elijah and call idolatrous nations and rulers to turn back to the one true God. But then, all of a sudden, a horrible beast appears. Let the reader remember Daniel chapter 7, and the beast conquers the witnesses and kills them. But then, God brings them back to life and vindicates the witnesses before their persecutors, and the end result is that many among the nations finally do repent and give glory to the Creator God in the day of the Lord. Now, stop. Think about the story so far. God's warning judgments through the seals and through the trumpets did not generate repentance among the nations, just like the Exodus plagues only hardened Pharaoh's heart. But the Lamb, he conquered his enemies by loving them, dying for them. And now the message of the Lamb's scroll reveals the mission of his army, the church. God's kingdom will be revealed when the nations see the church imitating the loving sacrifice of the lamb, not killing their enemies, but dying for them. It is God's mercy shown through Jesus' followers that will bring the nations to repentance. And This surprising claim is the message of the open scroll that John has placed at the exact center of the entire book. After this, the last trumpet sounds and the nations are shaken as God's kingdom comes here on earth as it is in heaven. So now we know how the church will bear witness to the nations and inherit the new creation. But who was that terrible beast that waged war on God's people? And how will the whole story turn out? John will tell us in the second half of the book of the Revelation.
0: Okay. So let's pick that apart. Revelation, you're all like, what the heck did we just watch? Revelation chapter 6. Let's jump in. I'll read this for us. It's uh, 17 verses. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come, and I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. And when he opened the second seal... I heard a second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that the people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard a third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of four living creatures say, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, and with famine, and with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. And when he opened the fifth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood. Then the stars of the sky fell to the earth, and the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? All right, let's back up. So what were, we're talking about the scrolls again. He's trying to open the seals. What were the seals sealing? I just kind of said it, right? The scroll, right? The big scroll. So, what was written on the scroll? Do we remember what we said was written on the scroll? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what was going to happen? The decrees of God. So, this is basically like setting it off. This is basically like God's plan is now opening and starting to unfold, as it were. One commentary says Revelation 4 and 5 depict God's actions in heaven. In chapter 6, where we are now, John sees the resulting events on the earth, okay? So let's look at the seals. The first seal is the white horse, which represents conquering. And people are all over the map on this, as you would expect them to be. Some think it's Jesus Christ himself. Why would it seem like it would be Jesus Christ? Because of the color. Yeah, Ron? What's that? Yes, later on he does show up in a white horse, yep, because of the color, yep, right? Any reasons why we think it might not be Jesus? Would have had a, more descriptive title. a more descriptive title, probably, right? Where else was he just a moment ago? Like, we're trying not to be spatial and logical about this necessarily, but he was the one sitting on the throne, the Lamb, right, opening the scroll, so probably not Some people think it is the Antichrist or an Antichrist. Uh, Come and behold, a white horse and a rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquer. Yes. So it kind of goes alongside with where I lean, that it's maybe just a military conquest, someone who is like a conquering king. It, It also would be weird to put Jesus in the front of all of these other things that are very negative that are coming up right so it would be consistent to be just representative of a conqueror in general the second seal is a red horse and quite quite simply he just gets to take peace from the earth and so we see chaos reigning we see people dying we see him getting a sword the third seal we see a black horse what is, what, is, what is he meaning there with the, uh, the, the price of things? Anybody want to take a stab on that? The third horse? Famine, Famine yep. What, what's, the, what's the deal with the prices? A quart of wheat for a denarius? Anybody know what a denarius is? Yeah, denarius was a day's wage. So you're going to buy a quart of wheat for a day's pay. Seems pretty steep. Yeah, sounds like a gallon of gas, right? Two <laughs> <a> chicken. <particular> <laughs> okay, we're not going to get into newspaper eschatology. Not going to happen. You're not going to suck me in. But three quarts of barley for a Daenerys. Barley was the bottom of the barrel. Barley was like the poor man's staple. And so if you're still paying a, do- a, a day's pay for barley, that is some sort of inflation that's going on there. It's not catastrophic. They still have food, but it costs a lot of money. We're seeing some inflation happening there barely surviving. barely surviving definitely and then we see the fourth seal which is a pale horse or also in the greek it's a green horse kind of a mucus yellowy greeny horse right Gollum. what Gollum? Gollum? <laughs> a golem looking horse could be i'll go with that definitely and what is this horse doing what's the fourth horse Death. So yeah, kind of makes sense, right? Kind of looks like death, and he is death, and he is what? Gangrene. Gangrene, definitely, right? He was given authority over the earth to kill the sword and famine and pestilence and wild beasts. Anything that's going to kill people, right? It says twenty-five percent of the the earth is going to die. How anybody know how many people are on the earth right now, give or take? Yes, Mr. Google, 7 billion people. Oh, you didn't? Oh, I'm so impressed then. (laughs) All right, so let's pause. We got the four horsemen, right? The famed four horsemen of the apocalypse. Let's pause for a minute. Where do we see such things in the Old Testament? Do we ever see horses running around in different colors in the Old Testament? Zechariah 6, we do. Right? So again, we're starting to see things that are tying together. Prophecies of the end of the world, end times, we're starting to see it come to fruition. Where in the New Testament might we see such disasters as we're seeing now? Or someone talking about such disasters that we might be seeing now? Yeah, Matthew 24. Matthew 24. Jesus talking about it. So, We see these strands kind of coming together, hinted in the Old Testament with the different color horses, and we see Jesus talking about it in Matthew 24. One author writes, each of the first four seals represents conflict directed at Christians to test them and sift out false disciples. And we'll hit more of that later. But we we see things that are happening, that are terrifying to live through, but there are still believers that are here. Let's look at the fifth seal. Uh, i got to change my slide. Fifth seal. What do we have in the fifth seal? Who's there? Who's under the altar? The martyrs of God God are under the altars. Right? Right on the (laughs) slide, right? It's always that mix of getting discussion going and then giving you the answers and you looking at the slides. No, he he can't really mean martyrs because it's right up there. No, I actually mean martyrs. Yep. They are told to rest until the number of elect is complete, until the number of martyrs is complete. So this voice crying out from under the throne saying, how much longer, how much longer? When will we have justice? When will this end? When will you bring judgment on those who have killed us? And they're they're told to rest a little while. Things are still in progress. There are actually still martyrs that are dying. And, And when their number is complete, then the end will come as well. Um, Then we have the sixth seal, which is a great earthquake, a great day of the Lord. Anybody know, did I write this down? Anybody know where we might see, I did, darn it, in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 2. We also see it in Joel chapter 2. We also see it in a bunch of other places in the Old Testament, right, coming together. This is the great day of the Lord, the great earthquake. This is also proof that this should not be interpreted chronologically because what's happening is, Right here in this sixth sixth seal, what, what's going on with the earth? It's pretty much being wiped out, right? Like mountains are going, islands are going, skies rolling up like a scroll, stars are dropping out of the sky. There's, there's like nothing that's going to be left. And so if we're going to interpret Revelation chronologically, we got a problem <laughs> because the earth is gone. And then we're going to get to the next one. So it's more evidence why this is probably overlapping visions that just tell the return of Christ and the judgment from three different perspectives again, okay? So it's it's a preview of the end of the earth, right? Why do people hide themselves? They ask the mountains to fall on them and cover them. Yeah, they're terrified. It's finally happening. Yeah. Think about that, right? That's not a different God. That's not a different God than the one we worship, right? I know we think of Jesus as the guy with the back hair and the lamb and loving everybody and all that. But he's also the terrifying warrior that's going to return. So terrifying that people are going to want mountains to fall on them to cover them from the wrath that is to come. Hide me from the terror of this, right? And what about the seventh seal? We don't see it. It's just like, wait a minute. Where is it? It's not there, right? So now we have our first of our interludes, right? He presses pause, and we don't get the seventh seal yet, but he presses pause, and you're going to have to wait because this is a, a nested doll, and so stay tuned for that, right? Um, but if we, if we get some takeaways from even this, right, who is in control of all of these events? Yeah, Sunday school answer, right? It's, it's God. When, when the four horsemen, especially, are being summoned, right? I heard this, the living creature each time say, Come. They're giving permission for this to happen. It's like, okay, it's your turn. White horse, let's go. You know, black horse, let's go. Red horse, it's time. So the lamb, Jesus is in control of all of these events, right? And you even see language in here, like he has given authority to do this. He's given a sword. He's doing this. So this is Jesus that is in control of all this. And how should that help us? When we start to think about scary things like the end of the world, right? Our sovereign king is in control. This is not something that's out of his control, even this. He is dictating the end of the world because he brought the world into creation So he's going to see the world out into the next new world. So we have to remember that. Sometimes we can think of uh, trials and tribulations and the end of the world as something that's just like complete chaos and loss of all control. No, let's remind ourselves through the words that are here in Revelation that Jesus Christ the Lamb is ruling and reigning and regulating everything that's happening throughout the end of his creation. Okay? Okay. All right, well, oh, I just lost my place there. All right, let's hit seven. Um, oh, I wanted to say a little bit more before we get there. so back up w- what else uh, we've talked about it several times, right these are we have to interpret a lot of this symbolically, not literally, right when we hear language like skies rolling up like a scroll and stars falling from the... the is it necessarily going to go down exactly like that? We don't know, right? We know that the earth is going to be destroyed. We know that the, the new age is going to come in. The new kingdom is going to come in. But let's, let's back off a little bit from saying, oh, this exact thing has to happen, right? There's a lot of symbolism that's going on in here. Is this the beginning of the great tribulation? what we're seeing here? Is this like something that's going to happen in the future that then will be the beginning? I know it's a trick question. The beginning of the great tribulation. Could be, right? Goes back to my little slide before about how you're going to interpret revelation, right? Exactly. If you're a raging preterist, you're saying that this already happens, right? Yep. If you're a raging futurist, dispensationalist, you're going to say, nope, this is going to happen sometime in the future, and something's going to happen, and then we'll know. Those are the people that are looking at all the signs and saying, oh, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, right? Or it's all symbolic, right? But what about what's going on right now, and what has gone on from the time that Jesus walked out of the tomb? Right. What, what was going on with the persecution of Christians by Nero? Right? Burn, burning, them burning them alive, impaling them on sticks, throwing them to the lions. Right? What, what was going on in, in things in the world going on is fast forward to us with the Holocaust and things like that. What's going on when we have people getting their heads cut off by ISIS on the beach? And when people are getting executed in Afghanistan and people in North Korea are getting locked up for being Christians, right? Um, So we in 2021 America are sheltered a lot of ways from the historical sufferings of the church for their faith. It continued on in the early church, the Middle Ages, and especially before the Reformation. Think about Bible translation. Think about how many people burned at the stake daring to translate the Bible into the common language of of English? Was that not not persecution? I like the way the video put it when he got to the four horsemen of the apocalypse. He says, or in other words, I was hoping somebody would laugh at that. In other words, a typical day in the world. Right? Like all those things were going on. We live such a crazy little comfortable life right now. Like death and war and famine and everything else was commonplace back then. So to us, we're like, ah, I can't even imagine Not getting my Starbucks or whatever, you know, the case may be. But back then, right, there was wars. There was rumors of wars constantly going on. One quote said, um, it would be difficult to tell a Christian in China, Iraq, or North Korea that the Great Tribulation has not yet started. I think that's dead on. I really do. So if you're going to ask me where I'm going to lean, I'm going to say the Great Tribulation started when Christ walked out of the tomb and ascended to heaven, and the church came under attack immediately. Um, We see this on a massive scale. One author wrote that one mistaken notion is that the signs refer exclusively to events that will occur immediately prior to Christ's return. On the timeline of history, they're understood to be a cluster of events that will take place in a short period right before the end. I think we've got to stay away from that too. That's that's a, that's a, a, a pitfall. Like, okay, well, these things aren't happening. Okay, well, that's kind of a narrow view because let's expand your view historically and let's expand your view to what's going on right now with Christians all over the world. So I would definitely lean that this is ongoing history that was inaugurated when Christ walked out of that tomb and it's going to intensify. And we're seeing that, of course. It's definitely going to intensify until his second coming. So I think we're walking with these, these four horsemen currently with us. All right. Questions, comments? Ronald. Often, uh, to for income, so yes. Gone, pretty much
1: have to
0: be yeah. yeah, I think we've got to give in to the temptation. And let's face it, a lot of us have been fed this kind of eschatology uh, and it's a new eschatology, it's only been around for 100 years, um, and, and the historic church has not really believed a lot of those literal signs and things that, that we're seeing people on YouTube talking about, which we might get to one or two of them later. All right, 144,000. After this, chapter 7, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on the earth or... Sea against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun and the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed 144,000 sealed from every tribe. Of the sons of Israel. We see Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. And after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures which we've met before. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and honor and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him daily, night and day in His temple. And he sits on the throne, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, for the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So if we back up to the beginning of that, we see the first three verses, the angels are holding back the destruction of the earth. Until when? See, I didn't give you the answer. By this slide, I figured it out. Until when? What, is it, what does it say in verse 3? Yeah, until we have sealed the servants of the God, and, uh, servants of God, on their foreheads. What does that mean? They're actually gonna like make a seal on their forehead? Are these aquatic marine animals? What? What is a seal? What is he? What is this talking about? Seal with the promise of. Ooh, Hold that thought. Very, very good. A seal again, symbolic. <laughs> symbolic of God's protection, right? Remember the wax seal? A king who would say, this is my official decree. This is my official person. They're one of me. They're protected. They're under my authority, right? So keep that in mind. When we talk about sealed servants of God, these are believers. It is the church. And Piero led us very, very well to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Which say this: In him, you also, when you heard of the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed him, him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. When do we get our inheritance? When Jesus comes back, right? Until we all acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. All the Bible tells one story. Ah, right. That's what we're talking about here. Believers are sealed. They are marked. They are Christ. They are in the family. They are adopted. And the angels then are what? Protecting the world from spiraling into complete destruction until every single believer, every single elect believer, right, understands the gospel. God will lose none of whom the Father has given him. I mean, what a picture of that. Like, literally, the angel's like holding back the destruction of the world until all of God's children come into the understanding of the gospel. Such a beautiful picture and a beautiful understanding. All right, so let's talk about this 144,000 stuff. Is this a literal number? <laughs> yes, Ron? Yes. <laughs> yeah, the number is, well, the number. well, the number's there, yes. <laughs> this is a literal number. <laughs> the, yeah, the... Jo- it's exactly, so we see some kind of military language here. And if we're, if we're well-balanced, Bible-read people, which we are, because we went through books such as Joshua, right? We remember a lot of times we just, had, we just had, <laughs> we had military reports. This is how many soldiers there were. This is how many people were in the army. So people are like, oh, I get this. This is a military list. This is kind of like an army, right? Um, lots of people think this could be the exact number of elect Israel I don't think so Because if anybody was really smart And got a really big gold star What's weird about this list Too exact, Too exact? What's, what's weird about the What's weird about the names that are on this list 12 tribes. 12 tribes. Are they the twelve tribes uh-huh. Was there a tribe Of Levi that was allotted Land come on Joshua people think back right. No was there a tribe of Joseph? There was no tribe of Joseph. There was tri- well, there, his sons, yes, his sons, definitely. So this is a little bit of a wacky list. This is not a note-for-note a note list of what was allocated in the promised land, right? So this is some consolidation, some symbolism that's going on here. Um, is this the number of martyrs? That is the number of complete martyrs, right? What does, and this is where we're going to get into a head-on collision that I'm going to have with a dispensational worldview, so I might as well just out myself right now, right? A dispensational worldview is going to say that there's Israel and there's the church, and never the twain shall meet, right? God has different paths for each one of those entities, right? Right? Why do you think a guy like Pastor Mike would have a really big problem with that view based on the New Testament? (laughs) What? Yeah. Yeah. Instead, he used language, a lot of language, in like the book of Romans that our Bible study guys will remember, right? Talking about being grafted in, talking about Israel. Absolutely, they all were Jewish. So I, I, I definitely am not a dispensational guy when it comes to this because I think it's very clear in the New Testament that Israel and the church become one. Why? In the New Covenant, Jesus Christ. That's the. That's kind of the point of the New Testament. I mean, so where I lean is at this 144,000. The, the biggest numerology I'll get is maybe 12 tribes and 12 disciples, right? <laughs> Marrying the two together, right? And that's going to be the church. You better get used to me saying that because that's going to be my answer for everything. What does this represent? The church. <laughs> so I think this 144,000 is a symbolic number that's representing the church. Until God's elect, they're all converted, until they understand the gospel, until they're all safely home, he's going to hold back the end of the world until that happens, right? And so, uh, again, I look forward to being corrected in glory if that is not correct, but that's what seems to square most with with New Testament theology. So that's why I would contradict a dispensational, right? Um, In 714, heads up, uh, they are washed in the blood of the Lamb. They have white roses. They're made white in the blood of the Lamb. What is that a picture of? What is white, What would white symbolize? Purity. Yeah, forgiveness, purity. This is a picture, and, it's, and they're made white, how? By the blood of the Lamb. So it's a picture of our justification. It's a picture of our forgiveness based upon Christ's shed blood. Clothed in righteousness. So all this stuff, when you read Revelation, there should be a lot of threads of both the Old and New Testament that are coming together that make sense when you think about it. Okay? Um, Look at verse 9. This is more proof that it's not literal. It's not a literal 144,000. Why? Because... He looked, and he saw what? Not 144,000. He saw a great multitude that no one could number. So which is it? Is it a literal number? I think it's just saying the same thing, that it's the church. It's a great multitude from every nation, from all tribes, from all peoples, right? Saying again what? That this is... The church, we commonly refer to the church, right, as from every tribe and tongue and nation. It's a diverse church. These are people who have uh, come out of the Great Tribulation, who have remained faithful and they will receive their reward, right? The gospel, again, guys, has always been global. It's always been global. That's the point. And again, they're before the Lamb, just like in chapter 5. And 7.13, and it goes on to talk about persecution that is still happening today. Okay? All right, let's charge ahead unless anybody has any thoughts. Yes, Ron. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I have no further questions. <laughs> Justin laughed a lot. That is trick. I will take that from the recording whatsoever. <laughs> All right, chapter 8. We get to the seventh seal, which then gives birth to the trumpets. Look at verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And then I saw the seven angels who stood before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came out and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers, again with the prayers, of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And at the smoke of the incense, with prayers of the saints, rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. All right, so the seventh seal is opened. And what do we see in heaven? Siesta. Si- siesta. Okay, a break. We see silence. Why would you why why would you surmise there would be silence? Think about now, this is the 7th seal that has been opened, and if these are three perspectives of the same thing, this is the end, right? Why would there be silence then? What's what's about to happen? Jesus is revealed. Jesus probably then is like, it, now it's his entrance and he is about to do the, the final judgment, the final destruction, oversee all of that. So I think it it's, it's makes good sense to say that this is the appearance of Jesus, right? Again, the same story of Jesus returning in judgment. We're about to get into another version of it with the seven trumpets. Notice again that the prayers are offered as incense, right? He loves to hear our prayers. They are sweet to him. An angel hurls fire from the throne onto the earth, and and we see it's kind of an answer to the prayers of the martyrs that are saying, how long? Now, now, it's done. Now it's going to happen. Now I'm going. That's how long it's over. It's an answer to the martyr's prayer, right, that it is going to happen. Notice two things quickly about prayer. That prayer is sweet to God. It's sweet like incense. It's sweet to God. So our prayers are sweet to God. And that is the means of how he accomplishes his plan. Right? Think about that. Think about that the martyrs were praying, how long? When are we going to have justice? When are you going to judge? When are you going to? And he does it as a response to their prayers. It's one of the things, although we don't like to think about, one of the things we should be praying for as Christians is the return of Christ. It's like, yeah, we have a lot of work to do as the church, but still, we want judgment. We we want evil to be gone. We want sin and sickness and death to be gone. And we want to reign forever with Christ. So it is. It is one of the things that we should be praying for. Although I understand it's weird. It's one of those prayers that like a teenager never wants to pray because they like have their whole life ahead of them. They're just like, oh my gosh, I haven't driven by myself yet. I don't have a girlfriend. I want to get married. You don't want to get a job. So once you reach a certain age, you're like, okay, let's go. Come on. Let's go. We're ready. All right. So the seven trumpets. I'm not going to take the time to read that massive section from eight. 6 to 920, but we will run through those seven trumpets. In the first trumpet, there is a third of the earth that is burned up. In the second trumpet, there's a third of the sea that dies. In the third trumpet, there's a third of the rivers and the springs that are destroyed. And in the fourth trumpet, a third of the sun and moon are destroyed. Okay, so pause. Pause. Right? Where do we see such things happening in the Old Testament? Another really good question to ask yourself when you're rolling through Revelation. When you see something you don't understand, ask, where is this in the Old Testament? Of Egypt. Yeah, it's plagues of Egypt. We're seeing things like uh, right, water becoming blood, right, all of that stuff. It reminds us of the exodus of Egypt. Why did God do the plagues on Egypt? Deliverance. Deliverance. Right yeah, which he knew he wasn't going to do, so therefore he was going to yep, yeah. yeah, the flip side of deliverance has to be judgment, right we we talked about a major biblical theme is that there's really no salvation without judgment, right, and we see that even on the cross of Jesus Christ, he was judged in our place, therefore we're saved, right Israel was saved because God judged. Egypt, right? So we see that as kind of a theme throughout all of the Bible. And so we see this happening. So if we pause, right, we see all those things. Hail, of course, right? One author notes that these plagues, again, show God's judgment in the form of upheavals in nature in order to judge his enemies. What does God use to judge his enemies? His own creation, right? Isn't that wild to think about? He doesn't have to invent anything uses his own creation and think about the delicate balance of how God holds the creation in its in its you know sometimes we have hurricanes and tornadoes and all that stuff and something happens and we're like oh it's a tragedy it's like okay but how many of those things are is God holding back in his common grace right and then we see this when it's time to judge the world he just removes his hand right and 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 we see these terrible things what else is the same with these four trumpets? It's a fraction. Yes. <laughs> 33 and a third. Is that less than 100%? Yeah. So we don't see complete destruction. <laughs> oh. You've been watching YouTube, haven't you uh, yeah <laughs> these are partial judgments, right they're not full judgments yet. these are still partial judgments, right These are the first four trumpets these are these are kind of warnings saying really the end is coming right And do the people repent? well, it's t b d okay let's look at. The fifth trumpet. The bottomless pit is opened. Uh, Fifth angel blew his trumpet. I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. He was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit or the abyss. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit. And from the shaft, smoke rose like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with smoke from the shaft. And then from the smoke came locusts on the earth and they were given power like the power of the scorpions of the earth they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree but only those people who do not have the seal of god on their foreheads so he's only going after unbelievers okay really weird and important to note they were allowed to torment them for five months but not kill them and their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone anybody ever been stunned by a scorpion No, me neither. Okay, cool. In those days, people will seek death and not find it. They will long to die, but death will not flee from them. Okay, I found a scientific recreation of what this looks like to give you nightmares. There it is. It didn't take me very long to find that at all. It's just whatever came up in Google. Does it look like... An Apache helicopter (laughs) or not? We see this is legit, right? Somebody has gone and drawn an Apache helicopter and said, yep, that's a scorpion's tail. It's got a breastplate of iron. Look, it's got teeth on it. It's got the wings that sound like char. It's got a crown of gold, right? These are what people think about. These are people who need jobs or something (laughs) like that. This is not an Apache helicopter. Okay, sorry. This is constantly misinterpreted. To cite one example, this is from another commentary, best-selling author Hal Lindsey in The Apocalypse Code, (laughs) informs us that the fifth trumpet describes attack helicopters that will be deployed in our time by the Chinese army. He arrives at this conclusion by taking the details of John's vision and seeking correspondence with some feature of our current world, even though this meaning could have absolutely no significance to John's original readers, and does not obviously fulfill the stated intention of the text. These cannot be Apache helicopters, okay? I just want to make sure that everybody's clear on that, right? They're also told not to harm the grass. How how is an Apache helicopter going to, like, bomb people and not hurt the grass or selectively know if people are Christians or not Christians, if they have the seal, unless they had an infrared seal detector or something like that, right? Yeah, <laughs> but let's talk about what, is this the next slide, uh, what, what comes out of a pit, what, what comes out of the abyss, anybody have any memories of other verses in scripture, or any other interactions of, of what happens, what comes out of an, ab, an abyss, or the abyss, let's use the definite article. Do you say werewolves? Oh, <laughs> demons! I think you're right because uh, Jesus. Remember, we went through the uh, the um, the scene with the demoniacs, and he they led the legion of demons, and they wanted to go into the pigs. Why? Because they didn't want to go where? Into the abyss. And so, if you, if you look at a couple references in the Bible, like that one, for example, you'll see that most of the time. An abyss is going to be where demons and evil spirits come from. So again, these are not literal, crazy-looking locusts. These probably represent evil spirits, evil powers that are coming against the church, that are coming against believers. But also, in this case, they're so crazy that they're actually coming against their own selves in this. So the world is starting to kind of come apart at its seams in this, and that's as a result of evil in that, right? The sixth trumpet, we've got four angels. They kill, again, a third of mankind. Um, again, themes of God's judgment. These are now angels. These aren't demons. These aren't horse riders or anything else like that. These are now angels that are then starting to exact God's judgment on the earth. So you could see this kind of progression, even though it can't really be strictly chronological. Things are intensifying where it was evil forces that were doing this before, now we get to just kind of, okay, the one before the last complete number seven, now we see God. We see angels, God's messengers, actually doing the judgment of God, starting that to happen. So we're getting much more intense as we are doing that, okay? Questions, comments, thoughts? (coughs) I got 4 minutes to do two chapters. Frank laughs. I laugh too. All right. Let's see. Let's see what we can do. Woohoo. <laughs> Chapter 10. The Angel and the Little Scroll, right? What happened? We got to number 6 again. Where is the seventh trumpet? You got to wait. <laughs> Nested doll. Stay tuned. Right? So again, we have an interlude here. And talking about a little scroll, verse, 10, or verse 1, I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, how ironic, and his face was like that of the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire, and he had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he called out with a loud voice like a lion, saying, when he called out, seven thunders sounded. When the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel, excuse me, whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what was in it and earth and what was in it and the sea and what was in it, there would be no more delay. But in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as announced to his servants where else do we see somebody eating a scroll ezekiel chapter, two and three. <laughs> ezekiel chapter two and three what does it mean to eat a scroll is it literally eating a scroll no, he's absorbing the information. yeah yeah he's absorbing he's digesting just like we are to feed on the word of god right yeah. i'm Yep, because he needs to proclaim it. So he needs to understand it and he needs to so think about this as an interlude. These are instructions for the church. You better understand the word of God. You better internalize it and you better be ready to stand on it and proclaim it, right? Why is it a little scroll? A teeny tiny scroll. Of God is small. What's that? Our knowledge of God is small. I like where you're going with that. Knowledge of God is small, meaning that. Maybe God's not just going to tell us everything. God doesn't have to tell us everything. Maybe this is a partial revelation. Maybe he's telling us what we need to know right then and there at that moment. Right? Verse 7 says, No more delay, fulfilling what was announced to his servants by the prophets. In other words, Jesus' return and judgment is now imminent. Again, we've gotten to the 6. We have this interlude. You can feel the tension like it is about to happen. Same thing. Jesus returning Different perspective, okay? God's word will be fulfilled. The angel says, It's going to happen. It is now, there's no more delay, he says. It's going to happen. He's standing on the land and he's standing on the water to symbolize his God's authority over all his creation. Why is the scroll sweet and bitter? Yeah, there's good. Who loves everything they read in the Bible? (laughs) Especially when it says the stuff that's really hard to do, right? Sometimes it's a tough pill to swallow. Sometimes you feel that conviction. Sometimes you feel like, ah. And then sometimes you read the Bible about God's love and His grace and His forgiveness, and that's sweet. Yes, give me all of that. But when you tell me how I'm supposed to live my life, ouch, that's a little hard. That's a little hard to swallow. So it's going to be sweet and bitter. Let's jump to chapter 11. Really quickly, two witnesses. First, he tells them to measure the temple. He says, I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it's given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant my authority to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Remember? Symbolism. Remember? Maybe not literal. Maybe not chronological. So is this a literal temple? Complete trick question. (coughs) It's... It depends. You're giving me the Michael Scott. Um, It's a non answer for those who don't watch The Office, okay? Um, Remember the four ways we can interpret Revelation, right? So, dispensationalists who are raging separation of Israel people from the church people are going to say, what? Is this a literal temple? They're going to say absolutely, totally yes he's going to plunk it down right on the temple mount he's going to squash the 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 mosques that are there it's going to be a holy war it's going to happen people are going to resume sacrifices it's going to be awesome and that's going to be the millennium and we won't we'll get into that later on right that's what a dispensationalist will say right uh, what would, would you think a guy like pastor mike would agree with that well They, they, got, they got all kinds of... Basically, if you're going to be a dispensationalist, you're always going to lean a lot more to literal than probably what Revelation is saying, right? I definitely do not agree that there's going to be a literal, physical temple that's going to be plunked down onto the temple mount. Why? For the same reasons we said before. The New Testament. Like, why would we need to resume sacrifices? Jesus came. It's done. Why would... Why would we don't need the temple anymore. Why? Because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We don't need that. Not to mention, judgment fell on the temple in Israel in 70 AD for a reason. Jesus is saying, that's it, you're done. Right? Preterism would, of course, say this already happened in the 70s. I'm not going to lean there either. Um, again, I'm going to lean to a symbolic spiritual temple, which is going to fit with the New Testament, the New Covenant, um, The one question you might be wondering is, why measure it then? Because understanding, uh, I'll quote Phillips again, understanding this vision symbolically, we realize that John is told to measure the temple to show God's commitment to preserve the church throughout the tribulations of the age. So it's yeah, God knows the boundaries of his church. God knows who's in the church, who's not in the church. God knows when the church is going to exist and cease to exist. God knows all those things. And so, yeah, I think we're going to have to go with a, a symbolic measuring of the temple here. Which, if you're a raging dispensationalist, you want to throw something at me right now. But I'll just say I look forward to being corrected in glory, if that is not the case. But it doesn't seem to square with the rest of the New Testament to me. Let's talk about two witnesses and then go home. Okay. Two witnesses. <laughs> Did you guys expect any less coming to Revelation? <laughs> like, my head hurts. Are the two witnesses literal? Could be, could not be. What does John call them? What does he refer to them as? Verse 4, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. What else has he called a lampstand? The church. So again, my standard answer is going to be, I think it's the church. (laughs) I think it's the church, because I think he calls it a lampstand. And I think we've already seen that. The church will be proclaiming the word through tribulation. They will be persecuted, right, by the beast, which we'll talk about more at a later date. But they can't be killed. The church cannot be killed. No matter how much persecution it gets, it cannot be killed. Oh, yeah. It's a good one. Gentiles are the ones grafted into the olive tree. Very nice. I like that. Plus, 11.8 says it anyway. Um, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt. So if you're going to hold to a dispensational worldview on this, you're going to have to do a lot of picking and choosing. <laughs> of this is symbolic, this is literal, this is not, this is, 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 is that. Run. Yes. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Two witnesses verify what's about to happen. They verify the truth. Absolutely. Yep. Definitely. And then our last part, we get into the seventh trumpet. Final trumpet. It depicts what's going on in heaven, Right. Verse 15 says that seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Remember what happened at Jericho when the seventh trumpet blew, the walls fell down, right? Wow. The whole Bible kind of talks about the same thing. Seven is the number of completion then. So once again, we've arrived at the end, not a different end, but the same end. Just as told by the seals, right? Now it's being told by the trumpets. This is not another end to the world. This is a different end to the world. 1 Corinthians 15, 52 says, at the sound of the last, what? Trumpet, the dead shall rise. Right? So that's telling us we're at the end again. This is exactly what's happening. This is exactly where we were with the seals. Different perspective. Now we're going to see Jesus then Ushering in the new kingdom, the dead shall rise and be resurrected. Evil will be banished forever. This is going to be the beginning of the new age. It is the glorious return of Christ at last, and God's kingdom is now unveiled. It's here. It says it again. So, yeah. Any other questions, comments? It's so much fun. Yeah, question for the group. Okay. Where is the rapture? We will get there. We will get there. I will say that is definitely one of the new doctrines of the church. That's only been around for hundred years or so. So I'm, I'll tip my hand and say it's not there. I don't, I, I don't see a secret rapture in scripture, so and I, yeah, you kind of threw it out there, right yeah. I know I read the left Behind books too I know, I know, I know <laughs> right Left Behind books also definitely had two literal witnesses, which was kind of freaky. They were shooting fire from their mouths and stuff. It was kind of awesome, so <laughs> but yes, we'll definitely talk about raptures and millenniums and all kinds of stuff as we go on so cool stuff guys I hope this encourages you because it just kind of ties together so much of what we see in scripture all together sorry I'm going super fast but you can always watch the video again (laughs) all right let me pray for us father thank you for your word even though we just took a chunk of it tonight um, I pray that it's edifying to us I pray that we see you as you are supreme, sovereign, uh, the one in control of all things, the one who's created the earth and the one that will see this earth out and usher in the new kingdom. Lord, help us to trust you more. Help us to take these things that we've seen, especially the parts about praying uh, as the means of you accomplishing these things, but also about, Lord, knowing your word, digesting your word, standing on your word, proclaiming your word, and most of all, trusting you For you are the one that is in control of all things, even until the very end. We pray it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.